When I was uh, coaching football, one of the things that <laughs> seemed to always be controversial was uh, who got to play what position. Who was the quarterback? Uh, football, more than probably any other sport, uh, is a humbling experience when it comes to that because you've got out of 11 guys on the field, or eight these days, uh, you have all but one contributing to one person carrying the ball and getting the glory. Most of the guys out there playing know that they're never going to be in a position to score a touchdown, to have people cheer their names, and many will only have their name mentioned when they mess up. It's kind of a metaphor for life in a lot of ways. But one of the things that used to uh, always trouble me as a coach, and it happened in baseball, and it even happened in track, which is an individual sport. Why can't I be in this event? Why is that person in this event? And parents would complain, and kids would complain, and so on and so forth. But there was one person who took the heat for it. I remember when I was uh, a JV coach uh, under Tom Palin, and uh, we'd have coaches' meetings, and uh, we'd all have our, our input. We'd all have our, our say about who we thought ought to play this or what plays we ought to call and so on. But there was one person in the end who made that decision, and it was the head coach. The head coach had that decision, that responsibility on their shoulders, and they might seek input from others and they might receive unsolicited input from others but in the end there was one who made the decision when it comes to how we serve the lord what positions we're placed in what gifts we have and all of the various aspects of that there's one who makes the decision amen it's not the head coach it's not the pastor it's the Lord. We recently, in our journey through the book of Numbers in, this, in the wilderness series, we've seen God's people rebelling against God's chosen leaders, against Moses and Aaron. Folks deciding, well, that, that's just not fair. I should be able to do this too. Korah stepped up and, and as one of the Levites he had a very special job. The Kohathites, Korah's clan within the tribe of Levi, they were responsible for the furniture of the sanctuary, the things that were holy, that nobody else could, could touch or be a part of. Now, they couldn't go into the sanctuary to do the worship. They couldn't offer the sacrifices the way uh, Aaron's descendants could as priests but they were able to do that special job that no one else was allowed to do and it wasn't because they were better and it wasn't because they were trained and qualified in advance they became trained and qualified because God gave them those instructions but they were chosen by God's sovereign will God said this group's going to do this this group's going to do this, this group's going to do this, and none of you can do this. He determined the position. He determined the playing time. He determined the role, the responsibility, and the rewards. It was all 
God's choice. And when Korah and his followers rebelled, as you'll remember from last time if you were with us, God intervened and judged their rebellion. They rejected God's authority because the sinful heart resents God's sovereignty. When God wants to be God, our flesh says, wait a minute, I want to be God. Now, we don't usually say that. We don't, we don't come out and just boldly say, no, I'm more important than God. But what we do, what we crave so often is to be free of God, to call our own shots. I do what I want. I'm an American, right? I'm a grown man. I can do what I want. Didn't work out so well for Korah and his, his team. They were swallowed up by the earth in God's judgment. It didn't go so well for the 250 leaders that followed them in this rebellion, even though all of the human wisdom sounded really good. As they followed them, God judged them and burned them to a crisp with holy fire. Harsh. That's what happens when we reject God as God. No matter how religious we sound, and Korah sounded very religious. Aren't all God's people holy? Aren't we all chosen special people? Therefore, we should all be able to have access to God directly. But that wasn't what God had said. God had a very specific instruction and plan. Our high-sounding human wisdom, oh, it sounds good. There's a way that, that seems right to our minds. And the proverb says, in the end, it leads to death. So God had, had uh, Aaron's son, Eliezer, one of the appointed priests, take the, the censers, the instruments of worship that were used inappropriately by those who thought they had authority. They were seeking a position and they had used those censers inappropriately in worship, but because they were used in worship or for that purpose of approaching God, God said, we're going to set these apart as holy. Here's what we're going to have you do. Eliezer, hammer them into sheets and overlay the altar with them so that people will remember. It'll be a sign to the rebellious of what happens when you reject God's sovereign choice. In this particular case, it was to remind the people that no one was to approach God. No one was to burn the incense or approach the altar except for Aaron and his descendants. Now, this week, we're going to look at chapters 17 and 18 in the book of Numbers. You can start turning there chapters 17 and 18. And what happens now is not the judgment of the rebellious, but the affirmation of God's chosen servant. God has appointed Aaron to this position. He's established it over and over again. He puts him in this position in Exodus. He affirms Aaron and his sons through a ceremony in Leviticus. He's established it already again in Numbers 
He set aside the Levites, the tribe that Aaron and Moses come from, the rest of the Levites that are not Moses, Aaron, or Aaron's descendants, have special work in the sanctuary, not the priesthood, but special work in the sanctuary that where they are to do what God says to do, not what they want. So here in Numbers 17 and 18, we see a new thing taking place. Our core reality as we're looking at this should stand out to you as you're reading it. If it doesn't become clear, then I think I did something wrong in writing it but this core reality this is this is the melody that plays through this whole piece the lord assigns the roles responsibilities and rewards for those who serve him all right it should be clear this isn't the the preacher making it up we're trying to discover what god's word says the lord assigns the roles responsibilities and rewards for those who serve him let's read from the text Indulge me. We're going to read a fair amount here. We're going to read straight through these. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 17. The Lord said to Moses, mark that. That's, that's that repeated phrase we see over and over again throughout the text. This is the Lord's word. The Lord spoke. The Lord said to Moses, and we'll see him later talk to Aaron. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and get 12 staffs from them one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name. For there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Place them in the tent of meeting in, the front, of the tes- in, <clears throat> excuse me, in front of the testimony where I meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout. And I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. So Moses spoke to the Israelites, and their leaders gave him 12 staffs, one for the leader of each of the ancestral tribes. And Aaron's staff was among them. Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. The next day, Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them, and each man took his own staff. The Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. The Israelites said to Moses, We will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes close to the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? The Lord said to Aaron, You, your sons, and your father's family are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary. And you and your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the priesthood. Bring your fellow Levites from your ancestral tribe to join you and assist you when you and your sons minister before the tent of the testimony. They are to be responsible to you 
and are to perform all the duties of the tent. But they must not go near the furnishings of the sanctuary or the altar, or both they and you will die. They are to join you and be responsible for the care of the tent of meeting, all the work at the tent, and no one else may come near where you are. You are to be responsible for the care of the sanctuary and the altar, so that wrath will not fall on the Israelites again. I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I am giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. Then the Lord said to Aaron, I myself have put you in charge of the offerings presented to me. All the holy offerings the Israelites gave me, give me, I give to you and your sons as your portion and regular share. You are to have the part of the most holy offerings that is kept from the fire. From all the gifts they bring me as most holy offerings, whether grain or sin or guilt offerings, that part belongs to you and your sons. Eat it as something most holy. Every male shall eat it. You must regard it as holy. This also is yours. Whatever is set aside from the gifts of all the wave offerings for the Israelites. I give this to you and your sons and daughters as your regular share. Everyone in your household who is ceremonially clean may eat it. I give you all the finest olive oil and the finest new wine and grain they give, they give the Lord as the first fruits of their harvest. Oh, <clears throat> excuse me. All the land's first fruits that they bring to the Lord will be yours. Everyone in your household who is ceremonially clean may eat it. Everything in Israel that is devoted to the Lord is yours. The first offspring of every womb, both man and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours. But you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they, are, when they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. But you must not redeem the firstborn of an ox, a sheep, or a goat. They are holy. Sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Their meat is to be yours just as the breast of the wave offering and the right thigh are yours. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your regular share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. It is the Levites who are to do the work of the tent of, at the tent of meeting 
and bear the responsibility for offenses against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That is why I said concerning them, they will have no inheritance among the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the, from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor or juice from the wine press. In this way, you also will present an offering to the Lord from all the tithes you receive from the Israelites. From these tithes, you must give the Lord's portion to Aaron the priest. You must present as the Lord's portion the best and holiest part of everything given to you. Say to the Levites, when you present the best part, it will be reckoned to you as the product of the threshing floor or the wine press. You and your households may eat the rest of it anywhere, for it is your wages for your work at the tent of meeting. By presenting the best part of it, you will not be guilty in this matter. Then you will not defile the holy offerings of the Israelites, and you will not die. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today, we pray that you would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, that we might not only see words on a page or hear words proclaimed, but that we might respond to your Holy Spirit within us, moving, tugging, changing us. Protect us, Father, from human opinion, from the from the errors that can creep in inadvertently. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. We want to be faithful to your word. So I pray that you would speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue. Lord, I pray that you would give your people a hunger for your word, that we might feast on Christ, that we might dig deeply into the word and check everything ever spoken from this pulpit or anywhere else against it, that we might know whether it's from you. Now, Father, receive our sacrifice of praise today, both in the worship of the word and the worship of the singing, as we gather in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for being here among us as you've promised we ask that you would receive all glory and honor from this time. We pray this in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, and for your glory alone. Amen. All right. <clears throat> well, as we are looking at uh, this text, there's a lot, right? There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of the, the sacrifice Stuff, the tabernacle stuff that seems so foreign to our ears. We don't really, we don't really do that. We don't understand. And so sometimes it can seem dry as we look at these Old Testament things. I want to encourage you. <clears throat> First, I want to clear my throat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then I want to encourage you to make sure that you don't let yourself literally or figuratively fall asleep 
as you're going through God's word. Let it strike you as what it is, God himself speaking. He intends for us to get something from this because every word of scripture is God-breathed and it's useful and it's intended for us to put into practical use in our lives. As we look at this text, none of us here are going to be offering or attempting to offer sacrifices at the altar in the tabernacle. That doesn't exist any longer. The temple in Jerusalem is gone. Christ has superseded the sacrificial system. So what can we possibly get from all these Old Testament rules and laws and promises? Well, quite simply, everything in the New Testament hinges on everything in the Old Testament. This is the building of it. This is where we see Christ promised, predicted. He's coming. We see the picture of who he will be. We see the picture of what that will mean. Everything that was written in the past was written for our instruction. So as we take hold of these things that relate to ancient ceremonies and ancient tribes that, that don't seem on the surface to fit us, we want to look for the surprises. We want to look for those things that, that jump out as, that's kind of weird, because that weirdness tells us something. Like, for example, why in the world are the Israelites so terrified by a budding staff when they didn't seem to be terrified by watching the ground open up and swallow the rebels. They were still grumbling at that point. These things should catch our attention. What is it that God wants to say to us through this? I think as we see the principles unfold, we see what this text says to the Israelites in their day about God choosing Aaron. Not only choosing Aaron, but publicly affirming Aaron. He's judged the rebellious. Now he's affirming the appointed. Aaron is my servant. I put him in this place. Now, all y'all go get a staff. That staff, as we see throughout the scriptures, is used to represent authority. If you can picture the, the, the staff in the hand of the shepherd or the scepter in the hand of a, of a king, it's that idea. It represents authority. Now, if you, if you maybe haven't read your Bible a lot, but you've seen the Ten Commandments on TV. Anybody seen the Ten Commandments on TV? Raise your hand if you have. All right. So if you think back to, to Charlton Heston and, and Cecil B. DeMille's works, you may remember when Moses and Aaron go and confront Pharaoh and they come before Pharaoh and his sorcerers, God has them throw down the staff that represents his authority. And the staff turns into a serpent. If you were like me as a little kid watching this, it's stuck in your mind for years, this, this scene. And Pharaoh's sorcerers, oh, they say, yeah, that's a neat trick. That's kind of cute. Let us do it too. So they throw their staff down. And however that works in Satan's power, God allows them to turn their staffs also into serpents. Now, wait a minute. There's, that seems to be overpowering the sign that Moses is giving. 
Yeah, until God has Moses' staff turned serpent consume theirs. God's authority is always higher and greater. Satan may do counterfeit things. He may give signs that appear to be true, but they never will ever have the power or authority of God's word. So in that same picture, we, we, we see Moses come to the Red Sea. And what does he do? He holds his staff out and the waters part. That staff is representing God's authority through Moses. Later on, he brings water from the rock. In your program, I listed some of the, uh, some of the scriptures from Exodus that, uh, that show this account. And when they're fighting a battle, same chapter, they're fighting a battle against the Amalekites. And as long as Moses holds his staff in the air, representing God's authority through Moses, the Israelites are winning. And then when he would get tired and his staff would come down, they would lose. And so God had, had Moses bring helpers to hold his arms up so that the symbol of authority would be raised up against the Amalekites. The, I'm only telling you this because the picture of the staff has to do with the authority. So God says, take a staff from each one of the 12 tribes, each of the, the tribes of Israel, and have the leader of that tribe, the contemporary leader of, of that tribe, not the name of the ancestral leader, but have the, the one who is leading that tribe today, have their name inscribed on it. This represents the authority that God delegates within the tribes. And when you get them, bring them together on Levi's tribe, Aaron's name will be on there as the leader of that tribe. When you bring them, bring them to the tent of meeting, put them before the testimony in front of the Ark of the Covenant where the testimony is. And I will demonstrate the one that I choose, my chosen servant, my appointed priest. Because we're going to settle this matter. <laughs> I thought it was kind of settled when the ground swallowed up the rebels. But, you know, what do I know? God's already passed judgment. Now he's going to settle it. I choose Aaron. How do you know? Because God does something that cannot happen otherwise. Now, let me make it maybe a little easier for us to picture because we don't generally have staff. Maybe you can think of a walking stick. Maybe that'll help you. Maybe it's easier for you to picture a baseball bat. We, we have baseball bats around. Well, most of them are metal these days. I, I contend if God wanted to do it with a metal bat, he could do the same thing because he's God. You don't expect a baseball bat in your bat bag, in the trunk of your car, when you pull it out, to have leaves and flowers sprouting from it and ripe almonds coming from it. That would be weird, right? Can we all agree that that's weird? Nod your head or say amen or something so I know you're with me, right? because I don't want you thinking that's normal. That would be weird if you thought that was normal. So they have these dead sticks that they go out and they gather and they, they craft them, they carve them, they put their names on them. So they're, they're presumably decorated sticks, but they're still sticks. Dead sticks don't produce fruit or life. 
God says, I'm going to show you who I choose by bringing life out of this dead stick. And when Moses goes back the next day, one of them, you know which one, Aaron's, has not only sprouted, that's what God said, it will have sprouted. It didn't just sprout. Oh, no, no, no. It sprouted, and then it budded, and then it blossomed fully, and it also produced ripe almonds. Now, there are a couple of things that we should pay attention to here because, again, weird. First off, that doesn't happen aside from God intervening. God gives life, and if you haven't seen this already in the Scriptures, and you can probably guess where we might see this in the New Testament, God brings life to dead things. And if you think I'm talking about Christ's resurrection, you're half right. Absolutely. The one who gives life raised Jesus from the dead. But more than that, he's the one who raises you and I from the dead. Because every single one of us, from the most innocent baby that you can possibly picture, oh, they're so cute. Nope. They might be cute. Mostly they're noisy, loud, smelly, messy. But in all that cuteness, that's just a package on a sinner. Because that baby's just as much a sinner as anybody else. You and I, no matter how good we might think we are, we are all in our own natural state, dead in our sins. It's who we are. But God, who is rich in mercy, intervenes and brings life out of that deadness. When Aaron's staff buds, it, it, it goes beyond. It would have been enough if God just put a little sprout on there. Just a little, little green thing coming out. Whoa, wait a minute. That stick was dead. How did that happen? That would have been enough to fulfill God's promise to, to, to give evidence. But God wasn't done. It didn't just sprout, it budded. It didn't just bud, it blossomed. It didn't just blossom, it produced. Here's the other thing you should notice. It's not normal on a tree to have all the phases of growth at the same time, right? When you go out in the springtime and you, you see those, those apple blossoms come out and they're beautiful and fragrant, when the apples come, those blossoms are gone. That's not how it works. Here it is all together at the same time on this staff, God is doing it all and he does it overnight. That doesn't happen on its own. Not one bit of naturalness here. He didn't plant a seed and have it grow up. That would be natural. Seed looks dead, but it's not dead. There's life in the seed. And it grows, and that's how you expect it to be. There's no, no life in a dead stick. All right. The Lord assigns roles, responsibilities, and rewards for those who serve him. So he affirms Aaron. And we see that, that clear picture. And as the Lord says, this will put an end to the grumbling against me so they won't die. Everybody answer me together. Does that really put an end to their grumbling? No. We still got the rest of the book. And they grumble a lot. And we see it happen. But God is putting an end to the cause of their grumbling. There's no more debate. 
There's no question about who God has put in charge. So quit belly aching about why does Aaron get to play quarterback on this priesthood thing? The coach has spoken. That's the end of it. It's done. And he wants his people, don't miss out on the fact that he says, so that they will not die. God wants his people to be blessed. But how will they be blessed? By following him, by trusting him, by embracing his sovereignty. The more they decide they're going to do their own thing, the less they can experience God's blessing. Excuse me. Not only does he affirm Aaron, but he then speaks to Aaron and says, here's your job. Notice it starts out with, here's your responsibility, your accountability. You're in charge, yes, but you are responsible for sins against the sanctuary and the priesthood. You and your father's family, in other words, the Levites, you are all responsible for those things involved in worship. And when people get that wrong, you're on the hook. Maybe you can remember if you were an older sibling, you know, raise your hand if you're the oldest child in your family. Praise God and mercy to you. So raise your hand if you're the youngest child in your family. Uh, You got away with everything, didn't you? Okay. How about middle? How many were in the middle there? The special ones. So anyway, if you were one of the older children, you may at some point have been left in charge. Say amen if you went through that. Anybody? You, mom and dad go and do the thing and, okay, you have to listen to your older siblings that you're in charge. Well, that's a pretty big responsibility. And the, the younger ones are always like, well, why are they going to be in charge? Always griping about it. But when something goes wrong, who's on the hook for it? It ain't the youngest, I'll tell you that. Yeah, you hear me out there, don't you? The one who's left in charge. There's a greater responsibility there. So God says to Aaron, look, you're in charge of all this stuff, but don't think that means you're the guy with the clout. What that means is when things go wrong, you answer to me. They'll answer to you, but you answer to me. And then he goes on to say the same thing to the Levites or or through Aaron to the Levites. You're responsible for your job and you're going to be responsible to Aaron for your job. Nobody else does your job because it's set apart for you and you're set apart for me. Therefore, anyone who who touches these holy things in an unauthorized way, who gets involved in this stuff, who gets close to the tent of meeting where only the Levites belong, God's going to deal with them. So severely, he says, that they must be put to death. Kind of a big deal. And he says to Aaron and his sons, you're going to not have an inheritance with the people. Instead, when these offerings are brought, this is my gift to you. What they give to me, I give to you. And here's how you're to handle it. And you're to eat these things as holy things in a holy place. And you must be ceremonially clean to eat them. 
because even in God's reward for them, his provision for them, it was still an act of worship. God's holiness was of a higher priority than their preferences. The Levites, you don't get those sacrifices, but instead what you get is the tithes and offerings that are brought in. All of these things are going to be your wages for your service. Because you're doing the work, God's not going to leave you abandoned. When you serve the Lord, the Lord takes care of his servant. Pretty simple. But when you get these tithes from the people, you are to tithe from them. In other words, I'm going to give you the gifts that the people bring to me, but as an act of worship, so you don't forget your place, you don't forget who you are, and you don't become greedy, you take the tenth of that tenth and you hand that over to the priests as giving it to me. Now, when you receive these things, he says to them, you got to bring the best, most holy part. The best and the holiest. And that's how you demonstrate that your heart is worshiping and not just checking a box, going through the motions as you cling to stuff. And he says to them that they will not be guilty of offense when they do this. Well, what does that matter? Because if they're not doing this, then what they're doing is inappropriately taking God's things as their own. Can you see where that might be a problem? Unless you want the ground to open up and swallow you, fire to come out and consume you, or the people to rise up together and stone you, you probably don't want to be mishandling God's stuff or, if you will, embezzling from God. So God says, bring the best, the holiness, the holiest, and you'll be innocent of offense in these things. So even in God's gifts to them, what God gives them, by extension, the principle remains, what God gives to you, can become, instead of a blessing, can become a curse when you mishandle it. When you begin to think it's yours to do with as you please, rather than his, that he's giving to you, that you handle with gratitude and holiness. Okay, now, having said that, let's, let's kind of work through principles that we see. We've, we've walked through the text. We see the basic idea. There, there are a lot of details we could go into about the sacrifices. We've seen those in other passages. We'll come back to them at other times. Um, you know, they're detailed in the book of Leviticus, and we have some things even earlier here in Numbers. But we, what we want to get to is the point. What is the point? What is it that God's trying to tell us? Well, if the melody, the core reality, is that the Lord assigns the roles, responsibilities, and rewards for those who serve him, we can understand that uh, by thinking about the, the reality that spiritual leaders are called by God for his glory and our good. Okay, spiritual leaders are called by God for his glory and our good. In God's sovereign plan, not mine, because I don't plan that far ahead, we're just going through the book, right? We're taking it in order. Today, we have the membership meeting, as Shelley uh, mentioned earlier, after church. And in this membership meeting, we will be voting to affirm the nomination of our overseers, the spiritual leaders of our church. 
And so it seems particularly fitting that God would have it time up this way through no scheme of my own. In fact, uh, some who have been involved can tell you I was struggling with how to even preach this passage all the way up to yesterday. I mean, I started working on this last Sunday night in earnest. And up until yesterday, I was still thinking, Lord, you got to show me how, how to approach this. Because I don't want it to come from me. I want it to come from you. And I don't know what to do with a stick with almonds on it. The principle remains. God, God has put people in positions as he has decided it. But that does not give leaders in the church in particular a pass to do what they want. Let me just have a little side road here for a moment. I'm going to try not to do this too much because there's a lot to cover. We have lived in a world where many have claimed a special status in God's name. And as a child of, of the 70s and 80s, I remember hearing televangelists in the 80s when someone would criticize them, grossly misappropriate the scripture and say, touch not the Lord's anointed. I have authority as the pastor, as the so-called prophet, as the so-called apostle, as the bishop, the priest, the pope. Those who represent God hold zero authority when they are running contrary to God's word and God's will. The preacher, the overseer, the spiritual leader has only the authority that God delegates within the parameters of that delegating. So the authority that this pulpit bears is not the power of my personality or whoever else may occupy it. It is not the person that has authority. The authority is the word preached. Amen? It is not, you do what I say because it's my church. It cannot be. And if you ever encounter a situation like that, I exhort you to run far and fast from it. That is not of God. God's servants look a particular way. In fact, God's servants must reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. You cannot lead God's people according to the flesh. That's enough for, today, for right now on that. All right, so let's start to work through some of these principles. But, oh, wait, before we do that, let, let me just point out, if spiritual leaders are called by God uh, for his glory and our good, uh, you want to take a look at Hebrews 13, 17. It's our memory verse for today. Printed for you in your programs. You'll see it there. And we have already used this as a memory verse in this series in Numbers, uh, which I didn't realize until I was making the programs. But it captures what we need to grasp from it. 
The writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I'm not going to preach Hebrews 13, 17, although that would be a a sermon or even a series of sermons by itself. But notice, obey your your leaders and submit to them. There must be submission to leadership within the church. That's not because the pastor said so. It's because that's how things function, right? If your body doesn't listen to the head, then you have disease and bad things happen. The pastor is not the head of the church. Somebody should say amen to that. The pastor is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he has delegated authority to the leaders that he has put in place in accordance with his word. And those leaders have been appointed to serve the body. To keep watch over your souls, not because they get their kicks, they get their jollies out of exercising authority over you. If that's the case, kick them out. That's not of God. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. What does that mean? It means I don't work for you. I serve you. But I don't work for the overseers. I don't work for the government. I have to give an account to God so that when you grow or don't grow in your walk, I have to stand before God and give account for what happens on my watch. I don't make your choices for you. You gotta make your own choices. My job is to tell the truth and to do whatever I can to help shepherd you in that direction. Now, that said, let's actually write some points down here. How about that? First, the Lord affirms his calling by evidence of life, growth, and fruit. The Lord affirms his calling by evidence of life, growth, and fruit. You can see the metaphor and how it works, so I won't belabor the point, but notice in Aaron's staff, the sprouting, the evidence of life, the phases as, as we have the budding and the blossoming, there's growth and the producing of ripe almonds as fruit. In the reality of today, in the reality of our, our actual living in the church, those who are called to leadership, God will affirm that in them by evidence of life. They gotta have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how skilled you are. If you don't know Jesus, you can't be in leadership. Amen? Second, they need to be growing. There needs to be evidence of growth. If you're the same maturity level today that you were five years ago, ten years ago, you don't belong in Christian leadership. Amen? We need to be growing at all times. Is it a straight line? No, that doesn't graph that way. It's kind of bumpy. It's a little bit like the stock market, you might think. But, but, but we need to be progressing, becoming more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. How do we know if someone is qualified? We'll see qualifications in the New Testament of what elders, overseers should look like. But how do we know if someone is 
the word was used recently, worthy. Really simple. They're not. That's how you know. They're not worthy. Nobody's worthy. Aaron wasn't worthy. He wasn't chosen by God because he was worthy. He was chosen by God because God said so. And he affirmed it with the evidence. What evidence do you see in those people that you think are called to leadership? Evidence that Jesus Christ lives in them. Evidence that they are growing in maturity. Not perfect, but progressing. Right? We're not there but you should see a clear direction and they should produce fruit. When they are walking out their Christian life, are they producing fruit? Are they teaching things that build others up when they're not in a position to be a teacher? Are they adding value into the life of others? Are they demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in such a way that the reflection of the reality of Christ in them produces salt and light in the world. In other words, does their attitude and action of service bless others? If you don't see these evidences of life, growth, and fruit, that person probably should not be in leadership, at least not at that point. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy 3. From Numbers in the beginning of the book in the Old Testament, we're going to go to most of the way toward the back to 1 Timothy. If you get to Hebrews and James, you went a little bit too far. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy. And he's telling him about choosing overseers and deacons and so on. Here's what he says, starting in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, might mark that, that... That's an important phrase that we'll see contrasted in James 3 later. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach. Okay, live a life that is, that is not uh, hiding in the shadows. You're not waiting for the other shoe to drop. A life of unquestioned integrity. Again, not perfection, but above reproach. The husband of but one wife, I take that to be a, a one-woman man, temperate, balanced, stable, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Another rendering that's probably a little better is apt to teach, or prone to teach. They need to be able to rightly handle the word and have a desire to actually share it with others. Verse 3, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Notice it doesn't say that they have to have poverty. It doesn't say they can't be wealthy. It says they can't be lovers of money. They can't be driven by it. 
Verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. He gives the little parenthetical here in verse 5. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Some see a parallel here between the overseer uh, and, and the priest and the deacon in the New Testament and the Levites. It might be a stretch because the priesthood is for all believers. We all in Christ have access to God. But there is something of a, of a striation here, a, a, a strata of, of position. And that the overseers are the teachers, the leaders. They're responsible for the spiritual growth. The deacons are a service ministry role, like, uh, like the Levites, where you're doing the work of the temple, of the, of the tabernacle. So he goes on here to say in, in verse 8, Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, this speaking of a test of their character here, then if there's nothing against them, in other words, like the overseers, they have a life that is lived above reproach, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives, literally their women, uh, some renderings would say deaconesses, all, all seem to be appropriate. I don't know that it's specifically as their wives. They're to be women worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Again, he goes on as a deacon, must be the husband of but one wife, and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. You can feel confident in your service. You can feel confident when you are serving well. We'll stop there. Flip the page to Titus. After 1 Timothy is 2 Timothy, the next book is Titus. They're kind of skinny, so don't, don't get lost. Titus is in a similar situation. Paul's writing to him after having left him uh, to be pastor there in Crete. Starting with verse 5 of chapter 1, Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. As I directed you. An elder, same as an overseer in, in Timothy, must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. It has that same connotation as being above reproach. Not overbearing, not quick tempered. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, 
He's mentioning here, especially those of the circumcision group, they were dealing with those coming from Jewish backgrounds who were uh, trying to push these Gentile Christians into keeping the Jewish law. So these are especially those that they're dealing with. Verse 11, they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Again, we'll stop there. There's much more for us to see. We don't have time to go into all of the passages, but it's important for us to recognize in these qualifications for leadership in the church that the Lord affirms his calling by evidence of life, growth, and fruit. It's not hard to see how those things are demonstrated in those qualities that qualify one as an elder of the church or as a deacon. The only difference, by the way, between the qualifications, uh, the only obvious difference between the qualifications of deacons and overseers or elders is that teaching element. Deacons aren't called to teach. They're not required uh, to do that as part of that role. Jesus gives an example in John 10 when he talks about himself as the good shepherd. We see his example over and over of a humble servant. His exhortation to those who would lead in his name in Matthew 20, Mark 10, Luke 22, real simple. Leaders in the world, the powerful, strong folks out there, they lord it over those under them. Maybe you've worked for a boss like that. Maybe you've been a boss like that. They want everybody to know how important they are. Status matters. Position matters. And they're going to climb the ladder, whatever it takes. Not so with you. That's not how God's church runs. Instead, those who serve as leaders must serve as leaders. They must lead in serving. In fact, he says, those who would be great among you, you got to be the least. You need to be like a slave. This is the language that he uses. The Lord affirms his calling by evidence of life, growth, and fruit. Okay, we'll move more quickly with the rest. Notice this, the evidence of God's calling is clearly seen by God's people. The evidence of God's calling is clearly seen by God's people. Those who are called to leadership are not called in secret. There's not secret meetings and machinations over this. We're going to, uh, uh, machinations if you prefer, I don't. And, and where, you know, we can purchase a position. The church has had that simony take place over its history. That's not of God. When you are called to ministry in whatever form that is, or called to leadership, whether vocational leadership, lay leadership, when you're called to that in the church, it's not just a select few that know that. This is why we take a vote on overseers. It's the, uh, the, the council makes the nominations. I Clearly, I've got a pretty, pretty direct hand in that. But we don't have anybody serve without being affirmed. And we do this, not everybody does it this way, but we do this every year in consecutive one-year terms without limit. But you have to be affirmed by the body. In other words, the vast majority, 
We call for a supermajority in this, not unanimous because, you know, people can get crazy. But we want the vast majority, the overwhelming majority to say, yes, we believe in these people, that they've demonstrated evidence, that they're trustworthy, and we are entrusting them to watch over our souls, to handle our money, to be in charge of our policies, and so on. The evidence of God's calling is clearly seen by God's people. Where do we see that in the text? Moses goes in, gets the staffs, and he brings them out and shows everybody. He doesn't just say, hey, uh, it was Aaron's staff that budded. No, their names are on it in advance. They're, they're demonstrating this in front of the people as God has made this happen in their lives. In the same way, in the church, if there is question about whether somebody should be in leadership, they shouldn't be in leadership. Let me say that again. If there's question about some, whether somebody should be in leadership, they shouldn't be in leadership. It's important to recognize that God's calling into ministry is clearly seen by God's people. And if you're not sure, for you who are members here at the church, I want to encourage you, if you're not sure about somebody's character, don't vote to affirm them. We need, to, we need to deal honestly with one another. The character, the evidence, the calling needs to be clearly seen by God's people. Third point, God's appointed servant wields God's delegated authority within God's designated role. God's appointed servant wields God's delegated authority within God's designated role. We talked a little bit about this earlier, so I won't belabor the point. But notice in, in our narrative here that when the people see Aaron's affirmation, he's the guy, he's, he's the priest. They're terrified. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that kind of stood out to me. They're like, we're all going to die. God just said, I'm affirming him in front of everybody to set this at an end so that you won't die. So why would they die? They would die if they usurp the authority that God has given. If they step out of bounds, try to do the things that, that the rebels did, then they will die. When they approach God on their terms instead of on God's terms, they will die. So yeah, they should be terrified. Why should they be terrified? Because God has delegated his own authority to the one that he has appointed to be his priest. In the same way, God appoints those to leadership in the church whom he affirms and supports by delegating his own authority. But that authority only extends as far as God's word takes it. Anybody who claims to have authority from God, but they don't look like what we just saw described, they don't, they don't demonstrate the humility of spirit that Jesus demonstrates. There's question about whether that's actually coming from the Bible or from their own opinion. That authority is not legitimate. God delegates his authority to his appointed servant within God's designated role and not beyond it. In Acts 20, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 20, as uh, Paul is 
uh, departing. He's heading out. He's, he goes back past Ephesus and he calls the elders of Ephesus to come and meet him. And he gives a final farewell. He says, you're, you're never going to see me again. He ends up going to Rome and, and uh, you know, ends up beheaded by the end of the, of, of the story. But when, when you get through all of this, he, he calls the elders there. He attests to the ministry that he has had. You know the life I've led. You've seen my example. You've, you've watched me you know, sacrifice here. Understand, you are charged with shepherding God's flock. Not your flock, not my flock, shepherding God's flock. The authority is delegated by God within that role. Hebrews 13, what we saw in our memory verse, this has to do with God's servant serving the people, and because they're accountable to God, we submit to that authority in such a way that it doesn't make the job a burden. The job has enough burdens of its own. Don't make it a burden because you're hard to deal with. Right, that's what we're called to. All right, uh, next point. The role of leading God's people carries great responsibility. The role of leading God's people carries great responsibility. As we've seen here, Aaron's called uh, to, the, to the priesthood. Uh, the elders are set up in the church to lead, but not to lead their own people, to lead God's people. They're wielding God's authority, God's way. And it carries a great responsibility Notice what he says uh, to Aaron starting in, uh, what is it, verse 9? I've got them still in Titus. <clears throat> As we look at, at uh, what he says to, uh, to Aaron there, verse 8, the Lord said to Aaron, I myself have put you in charge of the offerings presented to me. All the holy offerings the Israelites give me, I give to you. Nope, that's the wrong one. I'm going to back up a little bit. Okay. Beginning of 18. The Lord said to Aaron, you, your sons, and your father's family are to bear the responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary and you and your sons alone are to bear the, the responsibility for offenses against the priesthood in other words as they are going through this as they're doing their job they are accountable to God Hebrews 13 they watch over your, soul, your, your souls as those who will give an account the role of leading God's people carries great accountability the greater the authority the greater the judgment when you should know better, God expects you to know better. James 3 says, this is sort of in contrast to the idea of he who desires to be an overseer sets his heart on that, desires a noble task. That has to do with desire, with, with understanding that this is a good thing. I would contend that, that we all should be maturing in a way that moves us toward leadership, whether that's the role we're called to or not. We need to understand it as a noble task that we should aspire to. James 3 says, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that the opposite thing? There's a difference between that desire, seeing it as a noble thing, and presuming. That's, that's what Korah did last time. Grabbing. In fact, Aaron and Miriam did it earlier to Moses. Trying to, trying to grasp that position to presume I should be able to do this too. And in James, he points out, we know that those who teach are judged more strictly. Greater authority brings greater judgment. 
Moving on, next point. The Lord provides for his minister through the fruit of ministry. The Lord provides for his minister through the fruit of ministry. Whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9 is a a picture that we can see here where um, Paul speaks about the, uh, the elders, the pastors, the teachers being supported by the church because they're engaged in the work. We see here in the, in the Old Testament, in this picture with Aaron, that God provides for their needs. But notice, they're not here to get rich. You, you are provided for by the gifts they bring to the church, Aaron. But you have to treat it as a holy thing. Notice he doesn't tell Aaron, these are your wages. The Levites have wages for their work. He doesn't tell Aaron, these are your wages. This is my gift to you. Treat it as a gift. Eat it in a holy place. Treat it as a holy thing. Handle it the way you would the sacrifice in the sanctuary because this is a gift and the priesthood is a gift and knowing me is a gift. God provides for his minister through the for his minister through the fruit of the ministry. There is a support, not a profiteering. In the, in the second half of uh, chapter 18, we see that with the Levites. You do the work, and here you're going to benefit from the tithe, but you're going to tithe from the tithe. Why? Because you have to remember, it's not about you. You're not here for your personal gain. You're here to serve, which brings us to our next point. Those who serve the Lord find their true reward in Him. Those who serve the Lord find their true reward in Him. In verse 20 of chapter 18, we see that the, uh, that the priests have no inheritance in Israel. They don't get land. You don't, you don't have an inheritance. Why? Because I'm your inheritance. I, the Lord, am your inheritance. He says the same thing to the Levites. Those who serve the Lord find their true reward in him. He provides for their needs, but their reward is not some earthly prophet that's going to pass away, but the prophet of belonging to God. This is a special, uh, a special inheritance that they receive. I'm reminded of Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I've heard that abused so many times. Well, if I delight myself in the Lord, if I am a good Christian, then God should give me stuff, right? I'm, I'm going to be happy and wealthy and healthy, all that stuff. If I delight myself in the Lord, then what's the desire of my heart? The Lord. The true reward, the benefit, is knowing Him. That's the reality. Everything else is passing. It's pale and it's weak. You can have all the money in the world. You will never be happy apart from the presence of God in your life. You just won't. <clears throat> Those who serve the Lord find their true reward in Him. Lastly, notice this. Those who lead others in worship must first be worshipers. Those who lead others in worship must first be worshipers. The priests who lead in worship, the Levites 
who lead in worship. They're involved in, later on, they're involved in the singing, and, but they handle all of the holy things. And the priests handle the sacrifices and the bringing the incense. These are the ones, this tribe of Levi is leading by God's design in worship. But the first thing they have to do is themselves be worshipers. Aaron, I'm going to give you this from the offerings. Treat it as holy. The Levites are given the tithe. And from that tithe, they are to give a tithe. An act of worship. They have to eat in a holy place. They have to treat it as a holy thing. They have to offer the very best part, the first fruits. He says it will be reckoned to you like everyone else as the fruit of your labors. And you're giving that to the Lord as an act of worship. This is... Uh, this is really important for us to recognize in the church today because we've created kind of an industry. It sickens me to say it, but we've created kind of an industry out of worship. And people get all fired up because you've got a great band and a great light show and all these different kinds of things. I just want to stay as, as plainly and boldly as I can if our focus at real life ever becomes the quality of the band or the building or the preacher, we've missed it. And I pray God shuts us down. Now, it's important to be skilled. We want to offer God the best of our craft. But if worshiping in song becomes about performance, then we've lost everything. We are here to behold our God, to enter into his presence, to have his spirit enter us. And if it's something that's manipulated by an emotional speech or by emotional songs that we're trying to work up some sort of a feeling, that's not worship. No preacher, no song leader, no singer, no person in the congregation gets anything out of worshiping other than worship itself. To worship the living God. To come to him and ascribe glory and worth to him. To see Christ as most precious. That's the goal of our worship. Before anyone can lead in worship, they have to be worshipers. All right. My time is gone. I just want to point out that Aaron's priesthood was partial. I, I do want you to turn, if you would, to Hebrews 10. I, I, I want you to see this. But Aaron's priesthood was partial. The blood of animals could never cover our sin. It couldn't. But Jesus, on the other hand, is the great high priest of a new covenant whose blood cleanses us from all sin forever. He is the fullness of which Aaron was a shadow. Hebrews 10, start with the beginning. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, 
would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. We just read that in Numbers. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Just as Aaron's role as God's chosen priest was affirmed by God through the clear evidence of a dead stick producing life, growth, and fruit, so Jesus was affirmed by God through the clear evidence of his resurrection. We read in Romans 6, For we know that since, that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Because his resurrection conquered death for all who are in him, affirming God's sovereign plan, we have forgiveness and life. And God has given us leaders who may be imperfect sinners, dead sticks in the flesh. But because Jesus is alive and working in them, they are alive and growing and producing fruit for our good and for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, as, as we conclude our service with song and prayer, and we head into our annual meeting and head from this place into the world, I ask that you would make clear to us your sovereign choice. Lord, I pray for those who are in positions of leadership or aspire to positions of leadership that you would grant us your wisdom, not human wisdom. We don't, we don't want that, Lord. We want you. We want your truth. We want to reflect your reality in our lives Help us to shepherd your flock well. And Father, for all of us, help us to remember that there's no sacrifice, no priesthood, no religious activity that can make us right with you. But even as new life from, dead, from a dead stick affirmed Aaron's 
position, the resurrection of Christ given to us that raises us from death to life is everything. And it is the affirmation of your power in us. I pray for those who don't know you today, Lord, that you would capture their hearts regardless of how long they may have been in church in their lives, regardless of anything, no matter what their background is, bring them to the foot of the cross that they might receive Christ and be united to him. And for all of us, Father, we pray that you would have your own way in us. You're the potter. We're the clay. We want to be yours fully. These things we pray in the name of your son. Amen.